This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back to Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. I'm Manny Bazunas, and lest we forget, it is Father's Day tomorrow, and Vancouver Consumer has delved deep into some of the best and more popular gifts for Dad this year. Number one on the list, breathable and washable sneakers. A sleek leather wallet might be nice. Or how about a high-end electric shaver for all hair and skin types? And because we're going to be talking about seniors' care in a moment, how about a Father's Day gift card for Granddad? Number one on that list, a coffee or espresso machine, a weighted blanket, a wristwatch with big hands, and comfortable underwear to replace the tidy whiteies. We've been asked a lot here at Vancouver Consumer when Whistler will reopen, and we're happy to announce today the grand reopening is targeted June 29th. There will be a variety of COVID restrictions, so we suggest you prepare yourself or you won't be allowed on the mountain. Steve Nash Gyms has been officially and court-approved acquired by a new group of unidentified investors. Precise dates for reopening will depend on the location, and those dates will be rolled out soon. Steve Nash shuttered its doors the middle of March, deep in debt, leaving thousands of members on the hook for their monthly dues. I can report to you today that according to a spokesperson for the new owners, all memberships will be honored. We are also told the new owners are looking at plans to rebrand. With the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of big companies have had to rebrand and repackage some of our better-known products. Aunt Jemima Pancake Mix, which has been around for 103 years and is owned by Pepsi, will drop its picture of an African-American woman who was named after a character from 19th century minstrel shows, of all things. Uncle Ben's brand of packaged rice, which is owned by Mars, as in the chocolate bar, said this week it is reevaluating possible changes. Their packaging features a white-haired African-American man named after a Texas rice farmer. Several of the biggest restaurant chains, including McDonald's and Subway, have put out the call for new recruits. 400,000 jobs opening up across Canada and the U.S. And with more than 7 million Canadians in need of federal government support to stay afloat, a new poll released to Vancouver Consumer this week suggests three in five favor a UBI, that's a universal basic income, anywhere from $10,000 to $30,000 a year guaranteed. When it comes to who would pay for this program, which could cost up to $90 billion, that's with a B, the majority of those polled said the funds should come from the wealthy who should pay more in taxes. The UBI plan came from the NDP in April, but Prime Minister Trudeau has rejected it for now. I'm Manny Bazunas. A real pleasure to uh, bring back a friend of the radio program, Mike Claussen. Acting Chief Executive Officer, BC Care Providers Association. Michael, how are you? I'm really well, Manny. Thanks for uh, for reaching out. Boy, if there ever was an association uh, under the uh, spotlight today with the pandemic and some of the rules and regulations and protocols having gone through a number of changes, uh, your group uh, is at the forefront of making sure that, number one, our, our seniors and the staff that work in these uh, care facilities are safe. 
Uh, no question about it. Uh, we were <laughs> always trying to get attention to our issues, um, but it seems that the, the global pandemic uh, uh, forced us into the spotlight a uh, little bit more uh, than we probably had originally imagined. And uh, you're right, it's, um, every day for us is really about how uh, we do an effective response, support, um, you know, the provincial health officer and government and, and make sure that on the ground um, that people are, are feeling safe and, and cared for. And, and, and it's very complex work. Uh, and we, we celebrate uh, the people who are on the front lines um, at the bedside with, with seniors. And, uh, but uh, for us, it's, uh, it's a real passion. We, we work, uh, my team here, uh, I got to give them a lot of credit. We work very hard every day on these issues. The BC Care Providers Association been around for a long time, Mike, as, uh, as you know, obviously. And your members of that association support more than 16,000 seniors in long-term care and assisted living, over 11,000 uh, through home care and home support services. I know you have a strong business background. Seniors care, it would seem to me, and I got a little skin in that game with a 94-year-old mother. Uh, seniors, it's a very human business. Oh, without question. It's a very people-focused business, and uh, we're seeing it grow, too. And it's um, as a result, and and as we keep on sort of reminding the policymakers and the politicians, it's not as though we were unaware that the baby boom uh, was coming, and the baby boom has impacted everything throughout the last, you know, 40, 50 years. We've seen the prices of you know, rents, housing, uh, consumer goods all go up as a result of increasing demand created by the the baby boom. And uh, the baby boom are, you know, you know, probably about 10 to 15 years we're going to start seeing them into that kind of retirement living. Some are already doing that, uh, getting into uh, eventually more complex care uh, needs. And so, uh, you know, the, the people who, like us and our organization, have been sort of ringing that bell saying we need to make the investments, we've got to be ready. And uh, we, we really don't like the term um, tsunami because um, when you talk about a, a tidal wave, it's, it's very destructive and it happens all at once. We refer to it as more as a, a rising tide. It's something that we can prepare for and plan for, um, but um, uh, it's going to end up costing a lot more money. But I think that... Um, uh, the goal is always to make sure that we provide excellent and efficient service and uh, make sure that um, that people have a, a real quality of life um, at that stage in their life. Mike Klassen, acting CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, bccare.ca, bccare.ca. You can reach out to Michael, 736-4233, 604-736-4233. You are listening to Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. I'm Manny Bazoon. Uh, Michael, your organization uh, recently sent a letter to Dr. Bonnie Henry to support a plan to allow family visits. It's a three-point plan, which includes funding to increase staffing levels and to make sure there's enough protective equipment. How is that going? Uh, well, the, the initial letter just went out this week to Dr. Bonnie, and I think she responded it, uh, to it in one of her daily news conferences yesterday, and she still is not ready to take um, that big step. Uh, however, we are looking at neighboring Alberta, for example, uh, where their chief medical uh, health officer is 
meeting um, collaboratively with uh, care providers in that province, and they have, uh, from what I can tell, they have a, a meeting scheduled on June 22nd with the entire sector. Uh, talking about visitation policy. I think we can do that in BC. The the message that we get from particularly the family members who are very distressed, really want to have that access to their mom and dad and care again. Um, there are couples that have been separated by uh, the provincial health order. And it was necessary. We did call for the end of these non-essential visits because of the threat of COVID-19. But um, we now feel that uh, providers, uh, if they are given the support that they are needed for uh, protective equipment that we could provide, uh, masks, for example, provide to a visitor, schedule it so that maybe we have one family member uh, visiting only, um, limit the number of hours. There's there's ways of doing this. We need to hear from the, the operators themselves who I think on a, on a sort of a, a site-specific um, set of goals, they would be able to uh, really sort of let um, the provincial health officer know how they can do this. And of course, we're not talking about inviting anybody in in a place where there's an active outbreak. That's just a non-starter. Uh, and then if, if the providers themselves don't feel as though that they can meet health and safety requirements for a visit, then they should also have, you know, by the, with, with authority from the provincial health officer, the ability to say no. But I think we should and, and, and now that the summer months are upon us, uh, I think we do need to find a way of opening things up a little bit. It's, it's just going to be too hard for families otherwise. Mike Klassen, acting CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, bccare.ca. Uh, when I mentioned at the top of the hour, Mike, that uh, if there ever was an industry that is under the uh, Klieg lights, it is uh, the home care uh, and residential care for seniors industry. And I think it's probably been a good thing, albeit on the back of some very bad news that uh, I guess came out of uh, the East, Ontario, for example, uh, where substantial numbers of seniors uh, uh, passed uh, while living in uh, seniors' living residences. Uh, Is this something that you, as an umbrella organization, welcome in terms of getting some movement to make sure that regardless of who the owner is of a facility, whether it's government or private, that these facilities are protected? No question about it. So your your main point is that we're getting a lot more attention and and, uh, and it's because of the, the, the problems that have existed there. And, and I don't think anybody will um, say that We've done a great job when we have these high numbers of infections, but particularly in Ontario and British Columbia, I'm sorry, Ontario and Quebec. I do want to say in BC, uh, we are um, very cautiously optimistic, I think, for for the first uh, wave of the pandemic, because we do think a second wave is uh, highly probable. I think we can say that we've done a, a good job, British Columbia, in, uh, compared to all other jurisdictions globally uh, of 5 million or above has, I think, among the lowest. I think it's, uh, it's either the, the bottom or the second from the bottom in terms of over number, overall number of fatalities related to COVID-19. And uh, so that's something at least we should acknowledge as some level of success. But we do um, uh, think that what's happened uh, in, in, in long-term care forces a conversation that we've been trying to to have with our elected officials 
And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to ascribe any uh, particular motives to anybody, but there are people out there that think it's ageism, um, perhaps, that we, we don't uh, put as much emphasis on, on, on uh, this part of our population as we should. But we've been talking about really two key issues uh, nationally and provincially. And one is the fact that we uh, have staff shortages uh, in so many communities right across um, uh, the country. If you read between the lines and some of the, the news stories of what's been happening back east, it's because they've been so short-staffed. Um, people say, well, you should pay them more. Well, we do uh, think that that's an important goal, and we do think government has a very important role to play in that. But we also see sites where people are paying, uh, getting paid top dollar where there's still a high demand for workers. So this goes a little bit beyond just a, a simple answer. It's more complex. And the other key issue is are the built forms themselves, the actual facilities uh, in, in where we have older sites that are from the 60s and 70s uh, that have these multi-bed wards. And we know that COVID-19 is just absolutely fierce and almost impossible to stop from spreading if people are within the same room just because of how it transmits. So we, I think we have a strong consensus that it's time to invest in, in infrastructure. Uh, the federal government has talked a lot about supporting housing, uh, but for whatever reason, uh, long-term care, even though it is people's homes, uh, doesn't qualify. So we're trying to get that changed so we can actually get investments in and new buildings as well. So staffing and infrastructure are the, are the key issues for us. Well, I look back at a report from 2018, albeit an American report, but you mentioned staff shortages, so I, I want to just roll out a couple of figures uh, to you, Mike, and see how you're addressing the situation uh, here locally. According to this report from 2018, so a couple of years ago, uh, obviously uh, preceded this pandemic by a good couple of years, there was an 82% turnover in staff at seniors' homes. Uh, roll the clock ahead to 2020. It, you flattened the curve a little bit on, on hiring. It's now down to about 60% staff uh, turnover. Those are still substantially high numbers. What is the industry doing to ensure that you're getting not only enough recruits uh, into the system to staff uh, uh, these homes, but that they're well-trained. So uh, I, I'm not sure if the numbers that from that American report necessarily line up with ours, but I do think that um, there are a number of measures that we're taking and, uh, and need to take. In fact, um, we've just uh, submitted a, uh, a budget presentation to the provincial government for um, a budget 2021. And we're asking for dollars um, that will help us on not only um, the recruitment side, so getting out there, providing more training spaces, more colleges to, to provide um, uh, training for healthcare aides and, and, and uh, LPNs. Um, but we also want to um, uh, try and support existing workers through additional training, um, uh, such as uh, mental health programs, because the work can be very stressful, especially during the pandemic, um, and making sure that they have um, training upgrades. So if they if they feel like they're ready to take a next step in their career, that they have the ability to do that. Um, in BC, I think our training levels are uh, uh, noteworthy in that they are higher than in some other provinces. Uh, we have a body that's called the Carried Registry, 
it does um, make sure that you have a certain uh, level of accreditation before you uh, uh, are able to uh, take a, a job in a government-funded uh, uh, care home or, or assisted living residence. Um, and uh, we also um, uh, have uh, been trying to deal with some of the kind of the regulatory burdens that are, are preventing people from taking um, the work. So. Um, I mentioned the carried registry. It it was doing a an assessment um, service that was preventing uh, people from say you were living in Alberta and you wanted to work in in the in the uh, East Kootenays or something in, in British Columbia. Um, you couldn't get that job unless you passed a test uh, that had to be taken in Vancouver. Um, and even if you did the test and you had to pay to eight hundred dollars to take the test there was a 1% pass rate. So 99% of people who took this test for some reason were failing. And so we took that to government, really urged them to do something about it, and we're glad to say that um, a number of measures have, have uh, been put in place as of last January that are uh, reducing some of those barriers. Because we know there are a lot of people who want to take on careers in the, in the seniors care sector, uh, but uh, if we put those obstacles in front of them, they're just not going to bother. We have got a lot more to talk about with uh, Mike Klassen, the acting CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, including uh, when we come back from this break, uh, how the uh, Care Providers Association and its uh, members are preparing for what could be a second wave. Acting Chief Executive Officer, BC Care Providers Association, bccare.ca, bccare.ca. You can reach out to Mike with any questions, 604-736-4233, 604-736-4233. Just before the break, uh, Mike, we were talking about staffing shortages and uh, what uh, you and your association and your members are doing to make sure that you're getting enough people working in uh, assisted living homes and uh, home care providers, etc. Uh, one of the things that came out of this American report from 2018 that uh, I was reviewing line by line uh, that we had talked about in the first segment, the number one thing that um, potential employees and current employees of uh, assisted living homes and home care providers want is ongoing training. And that seems to fall in general with what most industries are faced with. When you ask people working in whatever industry it is, the number one concern, it's not money. Money's about fourth on the list. It's always about ongoing training. So I was really glad to hear that you you and your members have really stepped up that part of the initiative. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, that study does line up with uh, some, some survey work that we've done with um, some of the workers in our sector as well. Um, the frontline uh, caregivers in our in our sector are um, just an absolutely unique and remarkable uh, group of people. Um, they really do have a lot of passion and care. And this kind of work is not for everyone. You don't sort of you know just jump out of one career and decide you want to work in seniors care. You have to have the right um, sort of uh, kind of. I think empathy and um, and and passion and, and caring for uh, elderly people, um, and a lot of people do. A lot of people, especially if you're a little bit younger, you know, they've grown up around grandma and grandpa a little bit more. So it's a it's something. It's a bit of a calling, and so uh, what we um, what we did 
uh, hear from uh, the workers when we did survey them is they are very proud of their work and they they want to be acknowledged for what they do. So that's what we try to do on an ongoing basis. In terms of training, there's a number of things that we can do to support them, but um, one of the the tough realities of uh, the healthcare sector in general, but particularly with seniors care, is a high injury rate. And it will shock uh, a lot of your listeners to know that um, it's not uh, being a policeman or a firefighter or a construction worker where you have the highest level of injury rate. The highest injury rate is with people who work in seniors care. So a few years ago, in fact, it was 2014, uh, we, uh, in, in, in collaboration with WorkSafe B, BC, um, uh, created a new association called SafeCare BC. And um, they are a fantastic group. We work uh, very closely with SafeCare. They provide occupational health and safety training, um, including things like mental health and wellness, um, making sure that um, you, know, you learn how to, um, to move somebody, uh, caution around slips and falls, all sorts of training that is um, slowly trying to bring down that injury rate because we can have on any given day hundreds of workers in British Columbia at one time off on, uh, on injury leave. And those positions mean that others are going to have to do more work, leads to overtime, which will lead to even more uh, potential injuries. So um, I think that our proactive approach to to training and making sure that people learn um, safe handling practices and and other things to try and make their their workday more safe, that they go home without an injury, uh, is a a very important thing um, that our industry is doing and will continue to promote. Mike Klassen, Acting CEO, BC Care Providers Association, bccare.ca, bccare.ca, 604-736-4233. Mike, we've heard a lot about an expected second wave of the virus. What are your members doing to prepare for that possibility? I think this has to be a really collaborative effort between um, government who uh, hold a lot of the the important tools in their hands in terms of how we, where we allocate resources, um, what kind of measures we need to take to to ensure that we don't have a stronger transmission of of the disease. Um, And providers themselves have to um, continue to uh, not only uphold high standards, but probably enhance some of their work practices to make sure um, that if a, a second wave um, begins, that they're, that they're uh, more prepared for it than they were last time. There are questions that we're asking right now. We did see, uh, for example, um, uh, it's called decanting, but we moved a lot of people, um, elderly people, out of um, the acute care and hospitals and into long-term care homes in the very beginning, thinking that was the best place for them to, to remain safe. And then what we saw were literally thousands of empty beds in hospitals, um, staff that were uh, probably underutilized in in the hospital setting, and then long-term care outbreaks becoming very, very difficult to manage because of partly the the nature of the buildings themselves. Um, uh, One of the most heartbreaking parts of of, uh, the reality of, of, of seniors' care is the very high levels of dementia there are dementia rates of in uh, about between 60 and 65% on average within a uh, care home. 
what happens if you have um, these cognitive issues is that people wander. Um, I saw a, you know, a, a piece of videotape. Somebody had a camera in, the re- uh, in a resident's room. I guess it was a daughter who had installed the camera. She shared the video and showed people coming and going from her mother's room and lying on the bed and so on. That kind of wandering will seem very shocking to a lot of the public, but we know that that's what happens um, in a case. And unless you are locking people in their rooms or physically restraining them or um, using chemical restraints, uh, which are also very, very tough decisions to make, you are going to see that. And so it's so hard to try and address the spread of some th- a disease like COVID-19 in those situations. So we really need some um, some tools and, and strategies to address that. Um, and I also, you know, wonder if we do get outbreaks, whether it's important that we take somebody out of a long-term care home and move them back into acute care where they might be able to have um, a higher likelihood of um, uh, resuscitation, but also uh, it will limit the spread in care homes where we've seen it. So these are ideas that I think we need to have a hard conversation about, and our organization is pushing forward um, by working with um, some very key um, uh, industry stakeholders, but also other uh, important voices and academic voices that are going to help us to really do kind of an independent analysis of what we've done. And uh, we're working very quickly to make sure that we have um, the results of, of that review uh, done this summer so that if a second wave begins in the fall, we'll be ready. Mike Klassen, acting CEO, BC Care Providers Association, joining us on this edition of Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. I'm Manny Bazunas. Uh, Mike, much of the uh, talk when this pandemic first broke um, was whether we should be allowing healthcare workers to work at more than one seniors or long-term care home. Uh, new rules have been implemented, uh, but they were, I think, reasonably slow in coming. Where are we at with employees for seniors' homes allowed to only work at one senior home at a time? Now, that's a great question. So the government, uh, through the provincial health officer, issued what's known as a single-site order. So this is a public health order that uh, asks employers and, and employees to make sure that um, that staff people are not moving in multiple sites. So there's been a lot of discussion around the topic of why people work in multiple sites. I don't think there's any one answer as to why it happens. Certainly by working at more than one site, you have the opportunity to work a lot of additional hours. And some people, some people say that that's because they need to have the extra income. Uh, we have seen that there are a number of people who are working at, uh, we have a, a classification called Full Master Collective, which would be sort of the highest pay rate. They're still working at so, several um, uh, sites, uh, government-owned and operated sites, for example. So the, the motivations are sort of different on a case-by-case basis. So what happens now is that people now in long-term care and assisted living, and I have to underline that, are the ones that are required to, to work in only one site. If you work in an acute care hospital or in home care, you can still move between one site to the next, which is a bit of a contradiction to the, I think, the original intent of that policy, and it's questions that we've been asking the Minister of Health of whether they want to reconsider that decision. Um, and somebody, for example, could work a shift in a hospital 
and then go work in a long-term care home under the rules as they're set out right now. So again, these are things that we have underlined as a potential um, threat to for spread of contamination, but right now we're still trying to work with government as to, as to how we, we resolve that. Um, what uh, we have learned through the, the single-site order process is that there are almost 9,000 um, frontline care workers that have been working in multiple sites. So that if that statistic doesn't sort of jump out at you as why we need to work harder to find more staff and hire and recruit more people into this great sector, uh, then I don't know what uh, what else will tell you that. I mean, we, we've got 9,000 people that are working at, um, extended shifts at multiple sites. That tells me that we need to try and find ways to, to, to ensure that uh, people are not only working the amount of shifts that they want to at a single site, but we're going to have to to do a better job of training and recruiting and, and, and attracting great um, frontline care workers to work in our sector to fill the, those those empty uh, empty empty lines. Um, and I guess the um, uh, you know the final thing about the the single site order is that uh, it was actually on March 12th in that original email that we sent to uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry that our sector pushed for this, and um, uh, a lot of the operators themselves. Um, in fact, uh, I think uh, almost all the operators in Vancouver Coastal Health on Island Health, and um, uh, much later with Fraser Health and, and Interior Health were able to already go to a single site without the health order itself. The actual official public health order came on April the 10th, and we're still waiting, and I guess we're still waiting for a few places uh, where there are, but it's it, there are very few left. Um, but the vast majority were already on a single site order, I think almost by the end of March. Well, I know as part of that bulging demographic that we talked about, the baby boomers who are coming up to where we're going to need more and more assistance, uh, Mike Klass, an acting CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, in the one minute we've got left, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, and I hate to put you on the spot, but that's what we do here, on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, 10 being we're doing an absolutely fantastic, wonderful job and everybody's happy, 1 being uh, it's a dumpster fire. On a scale of that 1 to 10, where would you put how we are dealing with the most vulnerable in our society, and that's our seniors? Gosh, that's a, a tough one to put on, on a number scale. But I'm, what, I, what I might do is, um, because I, I don't want, I want to be completely honest about this one. I think there are, uh, there's work to be done. There are better approaches. We have been pushing for um, more person-focused um, care so people feel at this stage in their life um, that they're treated for the individuals that they are. And we have uh, done a lot of work on developing a, a quality of life framework. But when you hear about what's happening, especially in Ontario and Quebec, you have to ask yourself, if, uh, why are we not putting the resources in place? What are the, what are the, um, what are the pieces there that we we need to make sure that people are getting treated with dignity and, and, and making sure that they have great care. And I know that there are operators that are doing fantastic care and um, really going well beyond the call of duty on this one. So I'm going to have to put it somewhere in the middle because I think we've got work to do, but I also want to acknowledge fantastic, um, successful 
um, delivery of, of care and quality of life that so many thousands and thousands of seniors are getting. And so we have to deal, uh, I think as an industry, I think we have to, to be honest with ourselves, but we also have to bring in our government partners and, um, and, and win over and I think, uh, you know, get the, the public back on side and so that's part of the job that BC Care Providers is going to be doing. Uh, and uh, and I, I think that COVID-19 has really shone a light on what we're doing. Um, but uh, I can assure you we are working really hard to make it um, great. Well, I've got so much more to ask you, Mike, but we've simply run out of time. Mike Klassen, Acting CEO, BC Care Providers Association, one of the leading advocacy groups uh, protecting all of our seniors, bccare.ca, bccare.ca. You can reach out to Michael, 604-736-4233, 736-4233. Time now for another edition of Ask Andrew. Andrew Ferrer, our executive producer here at Vancouver Consumer uh, do you follow a business person's advice or top doctor's advice uh, when returning to what we can consider to be normal, Andrew? Uh, doctors. <laughs> I knew you'd say without, that. Without, without hesitation. Yeah. Like I've always said to people, if you are not a doctor, do not comment on public health measures because you don't know what you're talking about, no matter what you think you know. Well, you've been looking at some uh, interesting figures from a group of better-known doctors, and what are they suggesting about getting back to some of the things that we were used to doing on a normal basis? Yeah, so the New York Times asked 511 uh, public health researchers about what their personal opinions were on doing some of the things that maybe we've taken for granted so far and when they would feel comfortable going back to doing them. So of the 511, they asked, would you eat at a dining restaurant? Uh, 506 of those folks responded to the question. Only 16% would dine in in a restaurant now. Uh, 56% would do it within 3 to 12 months. And 19% said that, uh, uh, sorry, 28% said they would not consider dining in until after this time next year. It's a large chunk of people who would say they would wait 3 to 12 months. And of course, take these numbers with a grain of salt. This is uh, from the States. Uh, would you get a haircut? Of the 485 who responded, 41% said they'd be okay with it now. Uh, 39% said they would wait 3 to 12 months. 19% said they would wait more than a year. And here's the kicker. 1% said they would never go to a barber or beauty shop again. Really? So of 1% of 485 is four or five of those folks. Yeah, those doctors are all bald, though. They can just shave their heads. (laughs) (laughs) They're not looking at getting a haircut. Waiting a year or more. Wow. I mean, I haven't gotten a haircut in... You know, the magic of radio, you can't see my hair. <laughs> Good thing but as to, we sit yeah, here in the studio, yeah. it is it is down to my collarbones. Um, would you attend a sporting event or a concert? You know, concert ticket, refunds, sporting leagues are all big things right now that are maybe happening. And even just yesterday, the Tampa Bay Lightning have confirmed uh, in the NHL that, you know, a couple of their players and staff have tested positive. Several leagues this week have said we have players and staff who have tested positive. That's another discussion from another time, though. Would you attend a sporting event or concert? 3% of the 489 respondents said they would be okay with it doing it right now. Only 3%. Uh, about and, a third. And, the, and these are doctors. These, these, are, are, these, are, these are public health researchers. These are professionals. Yeah. Uh, a third about would say they would do it in 3 to 12 months. And 64% said they would wait more than a year. Oh, wow. Wow. So, uh, you, and uh, last one here. And I think this one's important because a lot of people are kind of, you know, going to the doctor. Oh, but what if I, what if I come into contact with somebody who's sick? Would you see a doctor for a non-urgent appointment? 
60% of the public health researchers said they would be comfortable with it. Uh, of the 507, 29% say they would wait three to 12 months, and 11% said they would wait more than a year. Uh, that being said, if you know something, if you have an urgent something urgent, if you're not feeling well, please you know call 911. Of course, do not be afraid to go to emergency rooms. There have been stories of people who have been hesitant to go to emergency rooms during this current crisis. Uh, last week on one, on uh, weekend mornings on CKW with Sterling Fox, we spoke to an emergency room doctor in Ontario who urged people, you know, don't don't hesitate. The risk of you contracting COVID-19 from somebody in the ER in passing is a lot less than the risk of you perhaps having serious complications from whatever health problem is prompting you to call or go to the ER. So I'm going to answer the PSA. If you need to go to the hospital, go. Well, as a confirmed hypochondriac, I can tell you that if I was not feeling well and not well enough uh, to hopefully let it pass, I wouldn't hesitate to go to an emergency room, not in the slightest. I would get over there, but I understand what you're saying. I heard that segment with Sterling, and everybody was right on. Look, if you've got an issue that is serious enough that you you don't know what the heck is going on, that's what emergency rooms are for, and you should take advantage of them. Uh, Thank you so much, Andrew Ferrara, our executive producer here at Vancouver Consumer. You are listening to Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. I'm Manny Bazunas. We'll see you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.